Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide Podcast. While it's true that blockchain technology is in its embryonic state, world leaders are still seriously evaluating the core province of their products, rethinking their value chains of trust, and seeking greater efficiencies in their manufacturing operations and distribution of products. This year, especially at the World Economic Forum, we've seen a lot of real progress in the circular economy discussion. In fact, it's been at the heart of the global trade discussions. Tech companies and global consumer brands are innovating products and labeling to put a transparent price tag on waste, as well to convert waste into wealth again and again throughout their supply chains and even in the supply chains of other companies and other industries. In my interview with Leanne Kemp, founder and CEO of Everledger, she shared with me how companies are rethinking their products, rethinking their supply chains, and even rethinking how they can recycle resources among companion supply chains outside their industries to optimize the circularity of their products. Leanne is at the center of the Loop conversation at the World Economic Forum on what the circular world looks like in the future. Let's tune in to hear what Leanne has to say about what the circular economy and circular ecology of the world looks like in the future. I'm sitting here with Leanne Kempt. She's the CEO and founder of Everledger. Good afternoon. Good to see you. Leanne, you're one of the, the lead experts in blockchain and, of course, shaping the architecture for the fourth industrial revolution is the, the theme of this meeting. How are you seeing uh, the fourth industrial revolution for IR technology being discussed, planned, developed, explored? Look, Catherine, this is my, my third year with the World Economic Forum, and I must say this year has been an incredible establishment of trust, not only within the participants of the World Economic Forum, but there's been a complete cohesiveness amongst the working group, and not only that, a commitment. We're actually seeing today a commitment to change. I've been delighted with the meetings in the last in the last week, and I cannot wait to see what it looks like in Davos 2020, because there's no doubt in my mind there will be those tectonic plate shifts from an economic standpoint, from a technology standpoint. We have to have this in the hands of the economy well before it's just too late. And I've been working with blockchain technology since 2014, and it's quite an embryonic technology in that it's relatively young. And applications we're seeing at a production level, and certainly from an Everledger perspective, we know and understand where this technology plays an important role in the supply chain for diamonds and coloured gemstones, precious metals and rare earth minerals. But the circular economy is not just a movement. It's rethinking the entire value chain of trust and the entire use of the world's resources. So when you talk about the task force or this working group on blockchain, I mean, always what's important when you have a focus group discussion is who's in the room. So can you share with us who's in the room? Who is, who's an important voice? So in, in the room was true diversity. We had diversity at a gender level and also at a diversity from an economic standpoint. Ministers and prime ministers were in the room addressing the concerns at a policy level. We have large corporations and then, of course, small to medium-sized enterprise. And then there's tech pioneers. Everledger was awarded a tech pioneer status in 2018. So it's the instigators, the ones that are the crazy ones that see and understand this technology and to create crystal ball affect its use. And when you bring all of this magic together, including the voice of the people, when you start thinking about the future of work and skills, it's important to understand what this means. And as you have all of the diversity in the room, 
it's not necessarily just thinking about an incremental change. Really what happens is we leapfrog the current paradigm and rethinking the way we want to live in a world and to create this economic value from resources and urban mining, which doesn't necessarily exist today. You know, 9%, it's so, so tiny, 9% of the world's materials are recycled and reused. 9%. It's, it's unashamedly so, bad. <laughs> so let's discuss. I mean, let's, let's give the audience sort of a, a good uh, real-world case example. In a circular economy, the objective is designed so that the materials can continue to cycle back in the system and create this closed loop. Can you give us an example of where where we can apply this blockchain technology in a way where we create transparency in the system and you're able to really look at the efficiencies and you're also able to isolate the, the product as it's moving through the cycle, how you can then really create a circular product? I mean, I could talk about it from a perspective of batteries. When I think about the one of the most conflicted supply chains in the world and has traditionally been as the diamond supply chain. We know this because Leonardo DiCaprio created Blood Diamonds as I a love movie. That movie. <laughs> <laughs> but then I cast my mind forward and think what could potentially be the largest, most impactful and potentially conflicted supply chain in the world. And it's very clear it's just something to do with stored energy. There mm-hmm. isn't a device, a person on the planet, a house that hasn't some reliance in time over stored energy. I mean, you have a mobile phone in front of you, a laptop again, and unashamedly, we have more than one device. And I certainly know from my perspective, I would probably have two or three devices a year. I either drop it or smash it or the new version comes out. But what happens to all this electronic waste? That e-waste. The e-waste and batteries within that product even so. So if you think at rare earth minerals, the traceability of cobalt and lithium are critical components to the battery supply chain. And then I'm not even talking about what's happening with the movement to electric vehicles. When you think about electric vehicles, what do we do with batteries that have been traditionally used in mobile type devices like cars? Can Can they be reused and repurposed into stationary stored energy on the sides of homes where solar is being captured as a part of the energy consumption for houses? So there's really two parts. The first part is traceability, core traceability of products or components within end consumer products. And then what is the life? I think typically manufacturers have thought about, I'll make the product, and it's been a race to the bottom. Cheaper, better, faster. If we can't make it in China, at the right price, we'll move to India. And then when India exhausts itself out from its economic advantage, then let's move to Thailand. And it's about time that we start rethinking that the value of products has to live beyond just first-time use. And it's also an incumbent responsibility for us as consumers to in fact ask the question, where does it go after it leaves me? What's my responsibility in this as a conscious consumer? And these were the types of topics that were discussed across the part of the last week. And let me say, it wasn't just a discussion for the sake of taking oxygen out of the room. There was an absolute commitment. You know, the formation amongst the participants in the room to understand the economic responsibility and advantages to being able to put circular economy at the heart of global trade. And it's purely just technologies like blockchain and AI, all these fourth industrial revolution technologies that really are the arteries 
that enable us to be able to move the limbs of industry. Yesterday, I was fortunate enough to be on the panel to release the Capital Equipment Coalition report that came out as a part of the Circular Economy Working Group. And, you know, my role not only is leading Everledger as the founder and CEO, but I'm also recently the premier point as the Queensland Chief Entrepreneur, which is a large state within Australia. And as a part of my role there is to really understand the future of innovation, what it could look like in the next sort of 10 years and even beyond this generation. And one of the really important facets of conversation that came out and it struck, it's really ignited me in terms of my government office, was to understand the responsibility of cities and governments as a part of this evolution. Typically, governments have looked to ensure that we have incredibly important and stable infrastructure. We have the balance of skills and work so that we can provide for a livable city and, of course, a livable planet. But when we think about our taxation system, we tax for waste. But if we start Mm. to understand some way of being able to reward for the reuse of waste, hence moving towards circular economy, this is really a very different way of thinking from a government perspective, even from a householder's perspective. If we think about, I have a rubbish bin full of plastics and even electronics, or it's sitting in my drawer, if I have some way of understanding the value of that, then, of course, we start to think differently. Now, it could just offset some of the waste taxes that might be in place in in sort of, you know, first-tier cities around the world, or there could be different models that are implemented. Now, the press release came out this week, yet again, another initiative that was born out of the World Economic Forum called Loop. Now, Loop has created a partnership with some of the leading consumer brands in the world, P&G being one of them, Danone is another, where we looked to create reusable and recyclable packaging where typically packaging was a cost of the good. And if we start to go back to the old days of the milkman, where the milkman came and he had the glass bottles, it was an incredible time, that milk bottle was put back out on the doorstep for the milkman to collect. And it was really the asset of the supply chain or the manufacturer itself. So moving back to a model like this is really quite an interesting place to start. Loop Coalition has come together with the support of the World Economic Forum and leading as what we call a a tier three project for the World Economic Forum with the coalition of technology, leading technology companies, as well as those consumer facing brands and launching into major cities. So New York and Paris to be the first two in the world right now. This is not something in 2020. This is not 2030. This is happening today. How would you characterize the, the cities that have been the earlier adopters? What is it about this loop technology, the the value that they see in the circular economy that's driven them to become more involved in your work with Loop? Look, I can speak from the heart of Queensland because I'm the chief entrepreneur and I understand the importance that our government has placed on innovation and on environment. And I think a lot of that really comes from the fact that we're a custodian of one of the world's greatest global commons, which of course is the Great Barrier Reef. And as we start to see and understand the changes that are upon us in one of God's willing assets, it's an incumbent responsibility. So it's at the very beating heart of our culture. And of course, we also have the Daintree Forest, which is our own Australian version of the Amazon. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these, these are at the very heart of Australia. So for us, it's not necessarily a nice to have. This is not a talking point for government. This is actually an incumbent responsibility to 
to ensure that the next generation has these global commons to enjoy. And as a part of the work that has been done across Queensland, we've also started to understand the importance when we have large-scale mining companies and the tailings or the waste from tailings. It's no longer good enough that they can just walk away from any of those governance responsibilities and leave behind if you weren't able to extract the wealth that you thought you might have. So we've introduced legislation in Australia for abandoned mines where there are conviction and some penalties that are put in place for mining companies. And I'm proud from my office to release some innovation XPRIZE commitments to understanding the cycling and the recycling of tailings off minings. There should be no sovereignty and boundaries when it comes to ensuring a livable planet and or a livable city. And it has to come together in such a way that we realise and we're honest with each other when we look in the mirror or to ourselves that we didn't get it right. And it's as simple as that. And if we can admit that we didn't get it right, then we are on the pathway to change. And as you start to walk through the pathway of change, the next sort of stage gate has to be at a deliberate intent. And the deliberate intent must come together through the connection of those that have a willingness of mind and an activation of will. So this is the piece that I think I've certainly seen here, I've felt it and I've been a part of it and it's not necessarily an activist type flying the flag. There have been hardcore commitments to ensuring that we want to be the change that we see and it's certainly core to my heart that I want to be the change that I see in the world and that was shared across the room that I was standing in this week. Those actions and commitments will come out directly after Davos. You can appreciate that parts of those meetings were Chatham House rules, and we're starting to put together the the formation of that. What I can say is that through my office, we made a commitment at a level with Queensland to lean in rather than just sit on the sideline. So I'm looking forward to being not only the change that I want to see as me, but also all of my fellow Queenslanders. So I think there's incremental innovation and then exponential innovation where you can literally re-change the entire value model and business model in the same leap and marry that with technologies. And there's two parts to this that I sort of grapple in my mind. Firstly, we think about the diamond supply chain, you know, 15 billion is extracted in raw materials year upon year. And by the time it hits the mid-tier of the market, it's $47 billion. It's a rock. It gets cut and polished. And then by the time it gets to the retail network, not set in a diamond ring, just the diamond alone, $72 billion. Yet in the mid-tier of the market, the diamond manufacturers that are mostly situated in one location in the world, in Surat, are surviving on razor-thin margins. How is that so? Retail outlets are putting... 200% marker on branded jewellery in the store and then you have 10 of the largest companies in the world on large-scale mining. So there is something in the current inequitable balance of a supply chain like this, yet the cost when we start thinking about the application of blockchain and AI to be able to provide for a platform of provenance, really, if the consumer is asking where did it come from, it should be an incumbent responsibility across all elements of the supply chain to support that technology rather than it being just a burden upon one part of the the system. There's a couple of 
parts to me that also realize that 30% of the diamond manufacturing and the diamond mining in the world is in artisanal small-style mining where that value is never attributed back right. to that community. Right. The same too exists in coffee beans, coffee beans and, bananas, and bananas, everything. Mm-hmm. So this same example prolificates out across many different examples. And so it's the brave and the willing to be able to say enough is enough. How much profit mm-hmm. is enough profit? So then we start beginning and thinking about triple bottom line. And the triple bottom line should really extend beyond just replanting trees. It should be back in the regeneration of community, this sort of ecological circular economy and of course the regeneration of culture is incredibly important. As we start thinking about the application of these technologies like robotics and AI, culture will become the beating heart of humanity. Yet I feel like we're missing some of that. Mm -hmm. And so when companies are talking about their sustainable agendas and maybe they're looking at business models in circular, what I'm compelling is that don't forget the people and the planet as a part of this process. And this was really the core that sort of came out as a part of the discussion points. I think there was a statistic that came out with FAO that for most of the food producers in the world, the actual ones that are farming the food that we eat globally, that they receive something at like seven cents on the dollar. And so when you think about the huge opportunity to economically empower people who are providing us these resources from the ground, the opportunities they might have to then take that capital to then, in an entrepreneurial way, you know, provide for better education and health. And you can really start to see how just by essentially creating transparency in the system and linking the consumer with the products that they're, that they're buying and really understanding, like you said, the province, the origin of these, mm. these products that you can unlock so much economic, true economic sustainable development potential in these communities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's something incredible. Certainly, we have about 40% of our innovators and startups in regional Queensland. And we also have an incredibly important heritage around our Indigenous community. Mm-hmm. And as we start to explore that the fact that one-time plastics is probably something that should be legally banned, in my opinion. We go back to the earth and we go back to Indigenous roots and we understand that potentially banana leaves off trees could be used for weaving baskets. So this craft, this artisanship, Mm -hmm. is actually going to save us. And getting back to that, the core roots of our heritage, is, is something I'm incredibly passionate about. So how can we think the value of these supply chains and the value of products beyond first-time use, but also the give back to ensure that that craftsmanship, the artistry is not lost forever. Robotics will play a role, but to get back to the human soul of artistry and creativity and ingenuity is really where we will actually thrive as humanity. Well, and if you can think about blockchain technology and the other technologies as essentially transactional tools so that you can track the the journey of a product through a system, but to redesign and reimagine the system, and like you're saying, to decide to source different natural products at the beginning of the cycle that naturally decompose is really, you know, I'm happy to hear that it's really part of the conversation. Perhaps there's a lot of, like you said, cultural knowledge nature knowledge, Mm. that intelligence that we can tap into in order to redesign the way that we think about 
different products that we produce, different different. Absolutely. And also one part with Everledger has been to look at the the types of supply chains that could become companion supply chains. Mm. So the extraction of e-waste out of laptops and mobile phones and even industrial equipment hold precious metals. And those precious metals can be reused and repurposed into the jewellery supply chain. So it's not just necessarily... Oh, interesting. Yeah. So these types of companion supply chains, who would have ever thought that Apple could become one of the greatest suppliers to Tiffany's? Potentially (laughs) it could be. (laughs) I never thought of that, of course, as we're thinking in such a connected, systemic way at these conferences, exactly these sorts of ideas start to come to the forefront. You've opened my mind to all kinds of ways in which the circular economy is not just then siloed in different industries, but actually... Correct. It's probably one of the most cohesive ways to truly get the double helix effect across an economy. And then there's no competition friction. A part of the issue in trying to solve for circular within one industry is that there's these competing tensions that occur because they're all competing for the same. But if you could bring circular economy up as companion supply chains, then actually the willingness to participate and cooperate becomes amplified. How do we get consumers excited about this circular economy and thinking about the life cycle of products? And when they're wearing a pair of pants that we understand sort of its its origin and we, we know that it's going somewhere and it's not just a static product, it has a life. Firstly, I think we need to have thought leaders, fashion leaders in the space where we can proudly enable the wearing of those clothing. Sometimes mm-hmm. there is a part of a part of society that looks down upon buying secondhand clothing. Mm-hmm. And I think we're well beyond that now. We're all grown ups at the table and we understand there's no shame in that. In fact, It's a beautiful thing to do. I certainly applauded Gap more recently where they had a Gap for Good as a part of a front facial section of their store in New York where I could literally take my jeans in that maybe I'd worn a hole in the knee and for them to be able to then reuse and give it a second life. So, you know, the cross-fabricing on fashion is really something quite interesting. And it just comes back again to the artistry You know, where I can see your shirt could apply to me as an awesome piece of fabric (laughs) that could be a pocket on my jeans. Why not? You know, to give it a second life, a facelift. Right, or plastics becoming clothes that we wear. Correct. So let's take the textile industry, for example. And I can imagine you've got all kinds of different brands that are associated with different fashion products and clothes. How important is standardization in this industry? And I guess this would just be an example for other industries in really engaging in the circular economy. Look, I think standardization is incredibly important because it becomes the common language across an industry or even across a technology. There are a number of existing standards bodies that exist. I mean, ISO itself is an international standards authority and they apply certain standards, particularly across technology. And when we start thinking about barcoding on consumer goods with GS1, that's another standard as well. But it's interesting to me because the engagement piece, actually, I think there is a standard. There's certainly standards in terms of manufacturing and textiles, but the real answer to this is in the labelling. And if we think about the label that's on your jacket and on my pants, and I look at that label, I would be more concerned and I would want to know about the CO2 footprint rather than whether I should put it in a dry cleaner or actually have cold water. So if we started thinking about, and we've got the percentage of polyester and cotton and all of the fibres that sit beneath and with it, but even if we had an education piece on the back of the label, 
And who cares about sizing anymore for me? I'm nearly 50, so I don't care if it's an L, an XL, a, a medium. <laughs> Let's get rid of that too. <laughs> but no, on a serious note, if we were to actually then start to understand where polyester could be reused, even just to be able to have that as an indexing of information, an education piece, right. then I would want to contribute. I'd want to know where my favourite jacket went. I'd want to see the next life of where my loved possession ended up. So I think there's something in the labelling that's really quite incredible. Everledger did a project towards middle of last year when we were with COP24, and it was to look at the diamond supply chain because there's a lot of talk about synthetic diamonds being sustainable Mm. and is better for the environment than the traditional natural stones. Mm. And as we began to capture data across the supply chain and look at manufacturers within our industry that were able to capture CO2, that were using water in a regenerative state, that were repurposing that water with trees, then there's green factories that exist within our industry. And as we connected that, we started to really understand the CO2 footprint of a diamond. Now, there's early stage research that's being undertaken, and thank you to De Beers for doing this, in looking at a carbon neutral mine, because there's some background research that the tailings off diamond mining actually can absorb the CO2. So what's really fascinating for me is that when you then compare the natural supply chain of diamonds to synthetic diamonds or man-made diamonds that are in a nuclear reactor sitting in countries around the world. And I can guarantee they're not using solar panels to help power those babies. It's very clear that there's a disconnect between the reality and the aspirational view that synthetics might be a better way to you know, save Mother Earth. So it's this taxonomy, it's this data alignment, and it's this dialogue that has to be put together. And we already have the platform for the world to see this, and it's in labelling. It's on the labelling of your shirt. It's when I go to buy my diamond and I can see the Everledger story. It's on the back of this Apple laptop where it's actually got a plate already. So it's these standard bodies that need to stand up and actually start to talk the talk. So the technology's here. Exactly. Right? The point. willingness is here. The millennials know. They, they, they're asking the questions. Where did it come from? I want to know more. Mm-hmm. And now it's the frozen middle of commerce that needs to wake up and actually put on their running shoes because we need to run faster than ever before to get this out into the world. Two things only. Footprint of CO2 and water. That's the only two. Let's just start there. Leanne, it's been absolutely fabulous to be with you. If there's one summary moment or one memorable moment at the WEF that you'd like to share with us that just really made you feel a sense of excitement and enthusiasm about the circular economy going forward. I remember it distinctly and I was standing in a room with the greatest thought leaders of circular economy and and I believe in our time we were all in the one room and there was a moment that wasn't necessarily just an aha moment because we understand what needs to be done. The moment in time was when there was a complete willingness to show all hands in the room that we're going to move from understanding the SDGs, right, the Sustainable Development Goals. And in a true Australian way, I had this moment where I was like, great, this is GSD. It's get shit done. Because everyone in the room really catalyzed upon that moment and said, we're all in. Boots in, let's go. Thank you so much, Sam, for being here. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast, where we're committed to spotlighting intuitive vision, 
nature-inspired knowledge, and native wisdom in our world. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com forward slash worldwide. There, we have a growing portfolio of podcasts with world leaders on nature, sustainability, climate, and tech for good. Thank you for awakening natural intelligence in the world. Have a beautiful day.